I'm Tammy Vendanger, host for Executive with a Cause. Today on the show, I welcome Jim Lynch, a longtime conservationist, the author of Natural Wellington, which was a plan to bring the birds back to Wellington City, and the founder of Zealandia, an eco-sanctuary in the middle of Wellington, New Zealand. In 2001, he was awarded the Queen's Service Medal for Services to Conservation. Today, we're going to chat about the good, the bad, and the hard things about starting a not-for-profit. Jim, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Tim. A good friend of mine introduced us. Her late father, Colin Ryder, was also a well-known conservationist in Wellington. How did you guys meet? Uh, well, we met at a Forest and Bird-sponsored uh, Earth Day. Forest and Bird is the uh, is the um, conservation NGO, the big conservation NGO in New Zealand. And they sponsored an Earth Day in 1988, I think it was, at uh, Lower Hutt near Wellington. And uh, Colin found out that uh, Eve and I did, had a planning and management systems design business. And he very quickly latched onto us and said, uh, we need a plan for Wellington and uh, would you come and do one for us and uh, immediately talked into coming on the local committee as the the um, vice president of planning. How about that? That sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it all started from there. So it was Colin's enthusiasm and his ability to recruit people and uh, get things moving. He was quite a go-getter with Colin and uh, we had a long and strong relationship over the years with very sad to lose him. Yeah, and that was not too long ago too. So it's it's lovely to see his work though in conservation as in, and yours too. I mean, Jim, you've been involved in conservation for a long time. How did you get started? Other than meeting Colin and him bringing you onto a committee, it sounds like you've actually been had you had some interest in this before. Uh, well, I was always uh, uh, very keen on nature when I was a young fellow, and you know, I used to be crazy on New Zealand native birds and. And uh, we had kiwis in the bush when we on our farm uh, at home that uh, we used to keep track of. And uh, I used to collect the Buller's Birds paintings and things like that. I, used to, I was quite a good artist, so I used to draw birds and, and animals all the time. So, uh, but I didn't really get that involved in it. Uh, I actually applied for a job as a wildlife service trainee cadet in, when I left school and was, don't even think I got anywhere near the 500s. <laughs> I think they threw, threw my application in the bin first up. <laughs> uh, but uh, we we got into the, my, Eve and I got into the green movement uh, in the, through the Values Party in the 1970s. So we were very much into environmental issues and green issues. And, uh, and then we got into tramping in the 1980s. And we used to go uh, tramp all around New Zealand and see these wonderful places that New Zealand has most of which are empty of birds, I have to say, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah. Mm. Well, well, you're going to have to define tramping because I think there are some terms that may not be well known in other parts of the world. Tramping, I think it is known as hiking elsewhere. Hiking, yes. <laughs> it's funny you say that because yeah. I remember my first visit to New Zealand. It was mostly the South Island, and I did find it so odd that I didn't hear birds in the background despite this amazing landscape that was right in front of me. Correct, yeah. No, that New Zealand is what you'd call a bit of a basket case when it comes to biodiversity because uh, uh, New Zealand was, uh, it's quite unique. Uh, David Attenborough described it as a world that would have been a window into a world that would have been if mammals had never evolved. 
Mm. And uh, he, he was quite, uh, in his Life of Birds program, David Attenborough put New Zealand on the first, in the first right up, right up front as a, as a, a poster for a poster child for um, what birds, uh, how important birds were. And um, the thing about New Zealand was it was isolated from, uh, it was part of the old supercontinent, great supercontinent of Gondwana, which Australia was also part of. Mm -hmm. And it broke away from uh, Gondwana about 80 million years ago before mammals had evolved. And then it sailed off into the South Pacific and, uh, and it followed an entirely different evolutionary pathway. And that pathway was without mammals. So New Zealand was literally the land of the birds. But the problem is that uh, when you follow a pathway like that and you're isolated from mammals, then uh, birds tend to get a bit fat and lazy. They, they, <laughs> the longer they are isolated, the bigger they get, the slower they get, slower breeding they become, and they tend to move towards flightlessness. And uh, that's what happened in New Zealand. New Zealand was a bit of a, what I'd describe as a Lewis Carroll wonderland of bizarre creatures uh, living in a lush rainforest and separated from the rest of the world by, by massive oceans. And it wasn't until the 13th century, now that's not long ago, is it? Uh, 13th century, uh, that's when King John was signing the Magna Carta in England and uh, before uh, and uh, when Genghis Khan was destroying the Song Dynasty, there were no humans in New Zealand. And uh, Polynesians arrived here in about the 13th century and they brought uh, rats with them and they started burning the forest. And when the settlers arrived in the 19th century, they brought more and more of these pest mammals, uh, rats, stoats, cats, feral cats, uh, pigs, deer, goats. And these animals had a massive impact on our biota. So New Zealand become, became the world capital of extinction. Mm. Uh, we had lost 45 species of bird, including our most unique ones, like the giant mower, uh, which was the world's largest bird, and that uh, was uh, hunted by the world's largest eagle. So a lot of those birds are actually gone. And uh, when I was a young fellow, uh, you know, I, I felt these extinctions pretty badly. Mm. And... Uh, so and an awful lot of other New Zealand birds cannot survive on the mainland. They have to be, in the 19th century, New Zealand government, very far-sighted, I have to say, set up all these island sanctuaries around New Zealand. And uh, birds were put on those to, just, just to survive, just yeah. to prevent them from extinction. So many of our unique native birds just could not survive on the mainland. You mentioned and, the Kiwi really early on, and I don't think a lot of people outside of this part of the world would actually know, understand what that kind of bird that is. But I think that that's probably a good representation of your typical bird, right? <laughs> like, uh, well, not well, only okay. incredibly cheeky and, and mischievous, but at the same time, they're pretty flightless, aren't they? they are, well, they're, they're a pretty unusual bird. They're nocturnal, so you only see them at night. Mm. They're about the size of a small turkey, the biggest one, and a, and a small chicken is a uh, the smallest one. There's five species of them. Uh, they're all nocturnal uh, and they fill a niche which in Europe and is probably uh, filled by badgers, uh, they're insectivorous and uh, they eat worms. And uh, in Australia, uh, that niche would be filled by echidna, probably. Uh -huh. And uh, so they're, 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 they're a bird which is filling a niche which would normally be occupied by a mammal. And they have a very long beak, which they probe around in the soil. 
and uh, extract worms and uh, they call every now and then and uh, they're completely flightless. They have almost no wings at all and they've been isolated in New Zealand for 80 million years mm. and they're our national icon. They're in our, uh, you know, New Zealanders are called Kiwis. So uh, they're, um, they're quite cool, actually. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, that's the nickname we've given all the New Zealanders is a Kiwi anyways for that exactly. reason. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the how because this podcast is really about, you know, the why is loud and proud here. Why would you want to protect these species and such? But you and others have gone through a lot of work to try to protect them, and it's taken decades. Tell us more about the Natural Wellington Plan and how well, you first got into that project. Right, well, Colin uh, Colin was the person, Colin Ryder, he was the man who got us into it, basically. So without Colin... It wouldn't be a natural one anymore as the land yet. <laughs> and uh, uh, so he commissioned Eve and I to do a plan. And uh, when we looked at Wellington City, uh, we were quite aghast because uh, Wellington City is quite, it's the capital of New Zealand. Uh, it's about 200,000, 200,000 people live in Wellington City. It's quite a small little capital, but it covers a big area. It covers 29,000 hectares, which is uh, quite large. It covers the whole Wellington Peninsula. And uh, so we started off by doing a survey and uh, we were quite shocked to see that there was almost no original forest left in uh, in the city. Uh, it had all been burnt off and there was only a, a, some regenerating fragments and there was no uh, very little bird life. There are only about 12 species of native birds and most of those were in tiny numbers. So... Um, uh, we were fairly shocked and uh, uh, I thought, well, what on earth would we do here? But uh, we, we proceeded on. We uh, eventually did find 36 sites which uh, were of biological value, but most of them were scattered all over the place. So when we wrote this plan, uh, the plan was to preserve and uh, improve the natural assets of Wellington City and to bring the birds back. And uh, how that was proposed to be done was to reforest areas and connect up these broken fragments with what we call bird foot corridors uh, and pest control into the city and if possible uh, do translocations back into the city and uh, and that plan was completed after about a year and Colin and I then uh, set about selling it and so we, we took it to the Wellington City Council and they were quite chuffed they, they welcomed it and uh, they basically adopted it as their green plan for the city. Then uh, the two of us uh, went all around the city selling it to various other groups, you know, community groups and rotary clubs and anybody would listen. And uh, we, all, we all got we got a very good response. So uh, what happened uh, immediately after that was that uh, the council adopted Natural Wellington as their green plan. Uh, they started purchasing land to create the out-of-town belt uh, setting aside land for to allow it to reforest. They protected uh, the fragments which were which we'd identified uh, and they started pest control in the city. So it was an immediate impact. Now, now you and, make it uh, sound so easy though. Were you and Colin volunteers at that point? No, we've always been volunteers. I've never been paid anything for yeah. conservation work. I've never been. No, we, 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 everything we've done has been both of us, Colin and I, uh, was entirely voluntary. So, 
And then I know that some of these things that you did alone and also some of the work that Colin's done, like the government hasn't always necessarily paid for everything in terms of like fencing and such like that. So how did you go about finding other people interested in supporting your ideas for creating these sanctuaries and such? Uh, well, well, Zealandia is, a, is, a, is, a, is an interesting thing. It, it came out of natural Wellington uh, because when, when we looked at natural Wellington, even I thought, well, how on earth are we going to get these birds back into it? You know, we, we have this plan to get all these birds back into Wellington, but how do we do it? Mm. And uh, Colin and I and Eve, we, we used to quite often uh, visit Kapiti Island, which is just off the coast of north of Wellington City. And it's one of the premier nature reserves, which was set up in 1890 to specifically stop some birds from going extinct. And uh, one of those is a little spotted kiwi and uh, various other birds. And gradually over the years, it was cleared of pests and it became a pest-free island. And we used to take these um, uh, uh, forest and bird trips to Kapiti Island. And it was like going to another world. You know, there was all these birds that you couldn't see on the mainland. Mm. And, uh, and I used to think, well, why can't we have these birds on the mainland? Why can't we have a Kapiti Island in the middle of the capital city? And uh, during Natural Wellington, uh, we'd come across a particular site which I was quite excited about was the Karori Reservoir. And uh, the old Karori Reservoir is right into the city. It's, uh, it was built in 1870 as Wellington's water supply. And it was uh, two dams were built in it. And uh, it's quite a big valley. It's about uh, a square mile in, in uh, American money and uh, 250 hectares in in, uh, in um, metrics, uh, which is two and a half square kilometers. So quite a big valley and it was regenerating forest. And uh, and I thought, well, this is a really special area. We have to, we have to, we're still a water supplier at that stage. And then uh, um, at that point in time, uh, the Department of Conservation were coming up with an idea called mainland islands. And this idea was to intensively manage uh, areas on the mainland to preserve threatened species populations in situ. And uh, and the one which they started off was within the King Country called Mapara. King, King Country is in the North Island, it's the middle of the North Island. It wasn't all that big, it was only about a thousand hectares, but it was a start. You know? So this mainland island idea, I thought, well, that's a terrific idea. You know, islands on the mainland. So we can have the same thing as these islands, but bring them onto the mainland. Mm -hmm. But how do you do that in a city? I mean, you can't. Uh, uh, Doc were doing this by using intensive poisoning and trapping and things like that. Well, you can't, you can't poison all the time in the city because you're yeah. poisoning with these cats, right, you know, right, kids and things like that. So uh, I'd heard also that uh, there were some experiments going on in small scale predator fencing. These are fences which are designed to keep rats and stoats and cats out. The particular ones which were going then were to try and keep possums out, which is an Australian marsupial, uh, and. Uh, and um, uh, and deer, and uh, so I thought. Well, all you have to do is we have to do is custom design a fence that will keep everything out. And uh, so I put these three ideas together, and uh, came up with the notion of the fenced eco sanctuary. So if we put a fence around the Kauri Reservoir, killed everything off, all the mammals off in it, exterminated all the mammals inside that, and then put the birds back into it they should be able to breed safely inside the fence. And then some of them would be able to spread out around the city 
and repopulate this again. So that's the notion of the fenced eco-sanctuary. So the fenced eco-sanctuary is what I would call the opposite of a zoo. Mm. So in a zoo, you uh, try to keep animals in mm-hmm. and people come and see them. But uh, in a fenced eco-sanctuary, what you're trying to do is keep all the threats out. And you're providing a nursery for uh, the birds which cannot survive on the mainland normally to uh, be able to build populations and then uh, gradually spread out around the city. And uh, so it's, it's what I call the nursery and halo effect. You know, the, the halo is the birds that move out around into the city once they've established populations. And uh, so uh, going back to your original question, how did I sell that idea? Mm. Well, I treated it like a business proposal because uh, even I run a, ran a, a business design and management system. So, I mean, all you do is just come up with a, a proposal and uh, all the elements of a business proposal. That is what outcomes you're trying to seek, um, what your objectives are, um, how you're going to actually go about doing it, what, what your end result you want to achieve, uh, what um, uh, funding you need and how you're going to secure this over long term and wrote that up as a proposal. And then I took it to the Department of Conservation, got a very good reception, took it to the Wellington Regional Council, who are the landowners, got a very good reception, uh, took it to uh, the Wellington City Council and got a uh, very good reception. And uh, the net result was I managed to wangle $55,000 out of them to do a feasibility study. Okay. So, uh, and uh, Colin again was instrumental in that. Colin will say the first time we would have, he did say <laughs> uh, that the first time I proposed this to him, he thought I was smoking pot. <laughs> and, and I was way over the top and it would never work. But uh, uh, I gradually talked him into it and uh, he came around and became a big supporter and helped me, came with me to, to sell this idea. At that stage, I went off and started um, working on Zealandia. But Colin got uh, uh, massively involved in, a, in his own project, which was a marine reserve on the south coast of Wellington. Mm-hmm. And, and he got sub, um, diverted and off on that for 17 years. It took him 17 years to get that going. How long did it take you to get Zealandia? Uh, from the time of the proposal to when we built the fence, uh, it took Seven years. Seven years. And Seven how did you fund the fence? Well, that was a very difficult thing. I mean, when we started it, uh, it looked like there were plenty of funding sources around. You know, there was philanthropic trusts, there was a lottery board, which is the, the national lottery, had a fund which we could tap into and various other things. But it took so long to get through things like consents and to convince the council that uh, it was a great idea. Convincing the council... Uh, Initially, they thought it was a great idea, but as soon as we started saying, uh, started getting serious about it, and uh, after the feasibility study, uh, they started backing off because they saw it as very risky, which it was. I mean, we were, <laughs> you can imagine the scenario. I'm coming along proposing something that had never been done before. Uh-huh. Uh, there's no pattern for it. Uh, it's easy for them to say, yes, we'll fund stadiums and theatres because you know they know what they look like. And, uh, and they know what they cost and they know what they deliver. But here I'm coming along with an idea which had never been done anywhere and uh, trying to convince them that uh, it's uh, something that the council should support. So uh, uh, they sort of put the brakes on it for quite a while and backed off funding it. And uh, 
And by the time we uh, got ready to through the through the hoops of consents and things like this, those funding sources have pretty much dried up. And uh, uh, eventually, uh, we had to sort of fund it almost piecemeal, you know, by small donations and grants and uh, philanthropic uh, donations, and and we had to get a loan for the fence. We had to go in debt to build the fence, which cost two and a half million dollars. And uh, so it was a massive risk. We took an enormous risk. And all, again, as volunteers. All of volunteers, yeah. I mean, I was was deputy chairman of the trust. We set up a trust to run it. uh, And the trust worked themselves into the ground, really, uh, for nothing. You know, we we did it for um, for love, really. Uh, But what what I found was that people were captured by the idea. You know, the vision was so powerful of this uh, Kapiti Island in the middle of the capital city that uh, people just flocked to it. And uh, and I think that's a real lesson that came out of it for me is if you project the vision so enough and if people want it, people will, will come to it like, like a magnet. You know, the vision becomes a magnet. And uh, and even when we put the fence up, you know, we were um, really, it took 20 years for us to build populations. And uh, for a long time, even after the fence was built, we were, we were working on the promise as opposed to it. In actuality. Mm. So, uh, yeah, but the real lesson of this is if your vision is strong enough and your case is good enough and you package it in a way which uh, makes sense and is uh, well-designed and all the rest of it, then people will buy into it. So it was one thing to raise the money for the initial fence. How are you continuing to maintain that now? One of the things which I was very concerned about, and of course my whole background is management systems design, is to set up, one of the things about conservation projects is they tend to die when the founder dies, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and just fade out. So I was determined that would not happen, uh, that uh, to make this go, you would need a permanent structure and organisation, which would, whose mission would be to build it and run it forever. So, uh, Zealandia, and this is something that had massive impact on people. Zealandia had a 500-year vision. Uh, so we were actually painting a picture of what this place would be look like in 500 years. Wow. Now, there's a, there's a reason why I chose 500 years, and that's because uh, uh, during this process, we went to North America, and I was shown around uh, the, the warehouse of forest companies' lands in Seattle. And uh, they're a forest company that cuts native timber in, in Seattle. And uh, as a planner, I was fascinated by the fact that they had 200-year plans. Mm. And I said, 200-year plans, that's amazing. And the guy said, well, that's how long it takes to grow a western red cedar uh, to cutting uh, age. <laughs> and I thought, well, uh, we, we should have a 500-year plan because that's how long it takes to grow a mature rimu tree. Mm. And uh, so uh, when I came back, I said, that's our vision. We're going to have a 500-year plan. And uh, we do have a 500-year plan. Okay. And we actually we actually set that out in, in sections. So we had the first 10 years, then we had the next 50 years, and what it would look like in 100 years, and what it would look like in 500 years. So it was a very real plan. And uh, and that plan still holds. It's still in place. And what are some mm. of the elements of that plan? Like from an operational point of view, from a finance perspective, like what's included in that plan that allows it to be sustainable? Uh, well, the other the, the financial sustainability is a very important part of this. So, uh, 
the other thing about an organization like this is you have to build commercial revenue streams. You have to build revenue streams. So if it takes uh, if it takes three or four million dollars, it actually takes five million dollars to run Zealandia every year. Uh, then you have to figure out how we're going to earn that five million. Mm-hmm. So uh, Zealandia was built up on five revenue streams. One is memberships. We 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 wanted memberships for two reasons. One is to give the community ownership to it, like shareholding, mm-hmm. and uh, and become owners of the, of the property. Secondly. Uh, was donations. We, we, we could leave it open for people to donate as much as they liked to the place. And it was very powerful in the early days. I mean, uh, people gave very generously, mm-hmm. uh, small to big. Uh, the third element was visitation. So that people would come, they'd, uh, they'd pay a, an entry fee. Uh, the other one was to have events so that uh, people could come and uh, hold a host a function, weddings, um, uh, Christmas parties, things like that. And uh, the fifth uh, fifth stream is um, commercial businesses like a cafe and a uh, gift shop and merchandise. So uh, we tried to build the organization so it has many revenue streams as it possibly could. Mm. And, uh, and then that was supplemented by the Wellington City Council who donated an operating grant equivalent to what it would have cost them to run the valley as a public park. Right. So, so $5 so, million dollars a year, I mean, that's still a lot of money to raise. I've actually been there. I've been to Zealandia, and it was fascinating to me to see this enclosed place that was so close to the city. I mean, it was in the city. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't even, you know, probably a 10-minute drive from where we were. For $5 million a year, you said – how many employees do you have? Uh, there's about 25 full-time employees and about another equivalent of another about another 20 or 30 part-timers. Okay. And are and, they uh, how, how do they generally spend their time? Uh, well, you have um, three streams. One is the conservation staff. Uh, there's a team of about 12 who look after the place and look after birds and maintain the fence and... Uh, um, do the restoration programs. Uh, then there's a team that run the visitation group. There's people who are employed in the cafe. There's people who are hosts and guides. Uh, people who run the office and raise money and uh, do all the corporate work. And then there's a management team as well. Mm. So uh, so it's, it's set up as a proper business and uh, it's run as a charitable trust now under the auspices of the Wellington City Council. And uh, but it still has memberships. There's, uh, there's seventeen thousand members. Wow. There's about five hundred uh, on the books for volunteers. Okay. So it's a it's a big operation actually. Yeah, definitely. And uh, and it earns about six million a year in funds. Well, you did say at the beginning donations were very generous. Are they still a large percentage of that of that operating fund? Uh, it's. Declining proportionally, um, donations come in at about $350,000 a year. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, the, so it so, really is a commercial model. Oh, yes. It's, it's a significant commercial model. Yeah. yeah. COVID has dented that quite a bit, of course, but um, because it's taken a lot of international visitors out of the out of the equation. Yeah, for sure. But, but I mean, they'll come back. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, a fascinating 
piece of work. I, I have a feeling, although I don't know for sure, I have a feeling in Canberra, I know we do have a couple of places that are similar in terms of being completely fenced out. And um, mm. oh, they, and, don't, they don't run the business model that we do. No, they don't. They, yeah. They've reintroduced species, which have, have been very successful, yeah. but it's actually it's, run by the government. Yeah, and then the university. Yeah. Mm. The university of Canberra. So it's sort of funded by the, by the Canberra um, state government. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so that's yeah. such an interesting model for you to be able to make it commercially viable. And as you well, said, uh, it's com it's commercially viable now. It took a long time to get there. And uh, and the reason it takes a long time to get there with biodiversity is because we were starting from ground zero as far as biodiversity goes, really. So when we started, there were only 12 species of bird, like bird in the valley. And uh, they were in tiny numbers, some of them. So, uh, And when you introduce... Uh, a bird to the valley, like the kiwi, for instance, we brought brook spotted kiwi in straight away as soon as you built the fence and cleared the pests out. So the sequence is you build the fence, you then eradicate all of the pests inside the fence, and uh, then you maintain the fence over time to make sure that nothing gets in. So that fence, which is a unique a sort of Wellington custom design fence to keep out 15 pests, went through a whole lot of research trials and uh, uh, we had to really build it quite solid because we we really didn't know whether it would work. And it was a massive experiment, mm. <laughs> never been done before. <laughs> so we, we were taking a huge risk. And uh, we expected to have uh, regular break-ins all the time of pests. Uh, but in actual fact, it's been remarkably successful. It's been up for 20 years now. Mm. And the only incursions we've had were a few weasels that got in when tree fell across the fence in a storm. Uh, we haven't been able to get mice out because mice are very difficult to control. They're, they're such, they breed fast and they uh, they're, um, live in tiny spaces. Uh, but we've got all the rats, all the cats, all the stoats, all the weasels, uh, possums, uh, they're all, all gone. Mm. And uh, so they were all gone within six months. Within six months, they'd been eradicated. And then we started bringing back the birds. Now, the problem, as I was alluding to, is when you bring back, um, so we, we introduced 20 kiwi first one year and 20 kiwi the second year. Now, some of those don't form pairs. Mm -hmm. So you have, say, 15 pairs out of a potential 20. Uh, some of them might die of old age because you might have the wrong, <laughs> you might have got some geriatrics who aren't green because <laughs> <laughs> you don't really know. <laughs> And uh, then some of them uh, uh, swap pairs and things like this. So you might wind up with, say, 12 breeding pairs, and they might produce one chick each, and then a couple of those chicks might die. And in the wild, if they're unmanaged areas, not all of them would die. You know, none of them would survive. But in the fence, uh, they'd have 90% survival rate. But even so, out of your 40 birds, you're only adding another uh, 10 or 12 the next year. Uh, so. And the next year after that, you only add another 12 or 13. So it takes another three years before those young birds start to reach breeding age. So uh, uh, it takes uh, uh, something like 15 or 20 years to fill the valley up with kiwis. Wow. So the, the valley is only just now filling up with kiwis. And it's the same with every bird. When you introduce uh, uh, every bird, uh, it can take 10 years before they start to become really visible. So while they're there and they're breeding and they're doing okay, they're not really visible. Right. So, uh, uh, so starting an eco sanctuary like that isn't like um, 
building a normal business where you buy stock and you fill your shelves up and you open on day one and bang, you're trading 100% from day one. You have to wait 10 or 15 years for the product to reach maturity. So in those first 10 years, we were really selling a, a, a vision. We had, we had visitors coming uh, and we, we could show them certain things. You know, we could find the keys, but, uh, but it was hard work. Now it's quite different, and you might have experienced that because mm -hmm. when you go in there, there's birds everywhere. Yes, so. yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's a dead, dead easy now, and it's a great place to visit now because of that. And you can quite easily go in there, but for a long time, it was quite tough. Yeah. Did you build the commercial models knowing that in advance that it was going to be heavily relying on donations to begin with, and then eventually yes. the commercial would be bigger? Yeah, yeah. But that's a real difficulty because. Uh, you have to make investments at some point, uh, particularly in the um, visitor centre infrastructure mm -hmm. and tourist infrastructure, that will only pay off another five or 10 years down the track. And we did have problems because we built the visitor centre with a loan from the council and, uh, and opened the doors in 2008. And guess what? That coincided with the economic the downturn. The global financial crisis, yeah. yeah. So uh, we went through a, a really difficult period there for a, for a while where we were just hanging on and, uh, you know, we had to uh, seek some support from the council and that, that threw the whole thing into doubt. You know, there was a, you know, a, quite a turbulent period there uh, where we had to uh, sort of box our way through. So, I mean, that's typical of most businesses, though. But what, what you have to look at, Zelandia, is it's sort of a blue sky starter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, uh, that's what they call it in the business trade. Yeah. There's a, a blue sky startup. It's never been done before. It's experimental. Mm -hmm. uh, it's being sold on a vision. And uh, and you have to go through all this, uh, um, you might call it turmoil and tumult, <laughs> just to make it, <laughs> just to see if it works. And uh, I have to say, when the bulldozers were crashing down, we, 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 we even I lived on the boundary. Uh, when we built the fence, when the bulldozers were crashing their way down the, the fence line, putting the just before they built the fence, my first my thought was this had better work, otherwise I'll have to leave town. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, and, uh, of, of course, we never made a penny out of it. It was all done for love. Yeah. You know, yeah. Mm. So, uh, so I have a question for you because, like you said, when you started to build this fence in the middle of Wellington. Did you have neighbors that were in opposition to this sanctuary? Some. Uh, the only neighbors that were really in opposition were the ones that were so close to the fence that they felt that they would be losing a view. Or, you know, uh, When we built the fence, we found 54 um, transgressions across the boundary where people had nibbled their way down into the property. Oh, the property boundary. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and how did you get and, past that? Uh, well, you just have to sort of work your way through it, and it took a long time. And that was one of the things that held us up initially, is we just had to work through and gradually get, and eventually we had to sort of move the fence down the hill a bit and uh, almost sort of legalise some of these trans trans uh, uh, transgressions. But... Uh, uh, but in the end, but overall, we had tremendous support from the local community, and uh, there were only one or two who really tried to oppose it. Mm. And uh, 
and they, they tended to get a bit nasty, I have to say, because uh, you know, they are the ones who questioned the whole foundation of it. They would say, oh, it's a, it's, it's a huge risk. It's going to be a massive failure. You know, the fence won't work and uh, you know, it'll, it'll wind up uh, costing a whole pile of money and uh, birds will fly away. Mm -hmm. So, so they, they, they are the sort of people that would question every fundamental of the whole proposition. Did it, did it give you any doubts yourself, knowing that this was experimental, as you say? Uh, oh, I had. Uh, how would I describe my mindset? My mindset was I was pretty convinced it was going to be good uh, because I knew the design was fundamentally sound. So uh, if uh, in a business proposition, uh, if the design is fundamentally sound and the propositions are sound, then it should work. You know, right. it's to, after that, it's a matter of money and effort and execution. Really, mm. it should work. Uh, but there were some things in there that we really were unsure whether we were unsure whether the fence would be completely uh, pest-free. Whether we could actually get that. We're unsure that we could get all the animals out. Oh, uh, we thought we could. You know, we're eighty-five percent certain. There's a little bit of element of uncertainty. Uh, birds flying away was a big fright. You know, we yeah. um, uh -huh. would they? How could we hold them there? Um, we had tremendous success in that, actually, better than that. In the end, though, uh, what happened actually exceeded what we felt would happen. When we built it, we felt we would have a lot of incursions that we'd have to deal with. Now, the only one that really beat us is mice. We thought we'd have uh, less sticking of species that we had, but we had you know almost. 90% actually. Okay. Uh, uh, and uh, and we didn't uh, know whether or not people would, the experience would would um, be sufficiently, uh, what would you call it, sufficiently, uh, uh, experience would be sufficient to be for people to actually pay for. Uh, it'll be attractive enough to come. Yeah, attractive to pay yeah. for, yeah. Because uh, a lot of people said, oh, well, it's just going to be a walk in the bush. You know, mm. you can do that at Otari, though, push down the road for nothing. Right. Uh, we can go for a walk in the bush and we go for nothing. So we were marketing an experience which uh, we felt was going to be okay, but uh, um, we had doubts about it. So to cope, cope with that, we, we built the whole experience around an education experience. So we told the whole story about New Zealand and how special this was, and people related to that. I mean, mm. It's just remarkable how people twig into the whole thing. And uh, and even people who uh, have nothing to do with New Zealand, you know, Americans are particularly fascinated by it. Mm. Australians love it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, they uh, they really understand, uh, once they go through it and it's explained to them and they, they see the story. So this strong element of that was the exhibition, which you might have seen in the mm -hmm. visitor centre, which explains the whole context of the New Zealand and how this all works. So uh, mm, it worked. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing it worked. <laughs> well, I want to try to give a visual for what it's like to be there yeah. compared to other parts. Like if you go to some parts of New Zealand, which are so picturesque or incredibly like walking into Jurassic Park, but not hearing anything, not hearing yeah. any wildlife at all, which yeah. is so odd. And That's then right. walking into Zealandia and getting a totally different experience. 
like that's yeah. how different it is to it's be like chalk and cheese yeah. yeah if you go into any unmanaged uh that's unmanaged forest in new zealand like over in the hills behind wellington is a, is the rimataka forest park which uh, i love it's a beautiful place mm. but if you go in there uh and this has been empirically uh confirmed by research 99 of the vertebrate fauna in that forest is exotic pest mammals. Wow. And uh, the, the native bird life in there is a tiny, tiny, tiny remnant. And uh, there are about uh, 15 species that hang on in there, but they're in small numbers. And you literally walk for miles and miles and miles. You might hear half a dozen birds. Yeah. Uh, you generally don't see the mammals. You know, the possums are uh, nocturnal. Nocturnal, and they're up in trees anyway. And the deer are very shy because they hunt quite intensively. Mm. And uh, yeah, the pigs don't come anywhere near and things like that. But uh, uh, so they, they they feel like dead forests. And, uh, and in fact, they are. And they're very badly damaged as well. So uh, you'll find that uh, not only the birds being killed off, but the possums are defoliating trees and killing, killing trees, uh, eating all the fruit. And the deer and goats are cleaning out all the undergrowth, and because there's no, there are no predators to, no wolves and bears to, to hunt the deer. Uh, they build up in huge numbers, mm. and uh, they have to be culled. Yeah. And uh, so it's a, it's a shocking mess, and uh, and we spend in New Zealand we spend hundreds and hundreds of millions every year on pest control just to just to try and stop these forests from collapsing, and. Uh, uh, the only control on the populations of these animals is the food supply. So uh, what they tend to do is just eat everything until it... Uh, and there have been instances in New Zealand where, where forests have been completely reduced to uh, what they call unpalatables. Mm. And there are several species which they just can't eat because they're full of flavonoids and poisons and, uh, or, they're, or they're just, just not palatable. Uh, so some forests have been reduced to nothing, really. And it, uh, in the past, it's caused massive problems with erosion and uh, you know, just collapse of uh, geologists, just flooding and things like that. So it's, it's a huge problem across the country. It sounds like there's a really good business case, though, if, if there's that much money being spent to control these pest species from damaging these forests, that by putting these conservation methods in place and being able to protect those native species, including vegetation, not just the animal species that... Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and uh, and the government does invest uh, hundreds of millions every year in pest control. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, and it's done on, on a massive scale and, uh, you know, very, very uh, systematic. So uh, uh, poisons are spread across New Zealand forests that are alarmingly huge right yeah <laughs> and uh yeah jim what is that 500 year vision because like you said no one thinks like this so what what is this vision that you've shared with everyone else to be able to get this many people involved and devoted to this cause well the 500 year vision is to return the valley to as close to its pre-human state as we can get it, and that, that'll be minus extinctions. Obviously, we can't bring back extinctions. Uh, and what happened with the valley was it was completely burnt off. So in 1845 
just as Wellington was uh, settled, uh, within five years of Wellington being settled, that valley, which was so close to the city, uh, was just burnt right off. Uh, it was like the Amazon now. You know, New Zealand would have been the Amazon in 1840, mm. 1880. And uh, so the whole valley was put into farming uh, and it was closed up in, well, the bottom part was closed up in 1870 when they built the dam. So then they decommissioned the farms and uh, it started to regenerate. But, uh, but it didn't regenerate completely because uh, there was still farming going on in the upper valley. And they built another dam in the upper valley in 1910. And that was uh, bare grass in 1910. And, uh, and then that was area, that whole area was then closed up. Uh, during that time too, uh, on the, particularly on the Eastern side, uh, the water people, water board people did a whole lot of planting of exotic species, big pine trees and things like that, which are not native to New Zealand. And uh, something like 20% of the valley was covered with these exotic uh, trees, which are really weeds. So uh, what we have is a mixed forest. Uh, some of it is still, uh, we've cut a lot of pine trees down, but there are a lot to go yet. We have to take down a lot of big trees. And, uh, and that's a long-term program. Uh, but the rest of the forest is what you'd call juvenile regenerating forest. So there is some forest, only about uh, probably a quarter is 100-year-old forest, 120-year-old forest. That's reasonably good shape. Uh, about a quarter of it is exotic pine plantations with some native forest under it. And the rest is only a hundred year juvenile forest. It's still, um, still quite young. So there's an awful lot of growing to be do, done there. And there are some species, particularly the big tall New Zealand trees like uh, they're, they're called podocarps, New Zealand trees, uh, fruiting pines. They're really unusual because they, instead of having a cone, they fruit. Mm. Uh, so they're called podocarps, which is uh, uh, poto means fruit. And uh, they're cl quite closely related to the dipterocarps in Indonesia. Okay. Uh, so they, they are the big fruiting trees of the forest, and we don't have those. They, there was none left. They, they didn't survive. So we basically have to plant them out, and those are the trees that take 500 years to grow. They're very mm. slow growing. So that's what the 500-year vision is, is that... Uh, in 500 years, we will have re-established the natural structure of that whole forest, both in terms of its vegetation and its bird life. Mm. And so, and do you it'll be old New Zealand? Yeah, we'll have a piece of old New Zealand. Old New Zealand, <laughs> but I mean, the challenge is you still have people living there. <laughs> so, is, is, <laughs> you kind of wonder how, like, putting a fence around one part of it sounds. Like that, that was obviously has worked really well for that conservation effort. What else needs to be done to ensure that this vision takes place, though? Because people right, don't well, live other, the, other, that. the other key element to it is the outer green belt. So, going back to natural Wellington, we identified all these little remnant pieces of forest spread around Wellington. Uh -huh. So, Zealandia is right in the middle of what they call the outer green belt. And uh, in 1990, when we started, the Outer Green Belt was about 1,400 hectares, I think it was. And it was all split up into pieces and well, it's really separate. But over the last 20 years, uh, 30 years, the Wellington City Council has purchased 
all of the land from the coast right out to the two coasts. They're connecting at two coasts. And they've now allocated all that land uh, to the outer green belt. Wow. Okay. And, and it now runs and now runs from the Wellington South Coast all the way through to people might, might, this might make much uh, people don't understand this, but it runs about oh, 25 kilometers and a big band right around the behind Wellington City all the way through to Porirua and up to the, the coast. And that's now up to 4,000 hectares. Uh, and when you add Porirua's into it, it's probably about 5,000 hectares. So what they've done is they've um, increased that protected area in size by about four times, and that surrounds Zelandia. So over time, as Zelandia uh, increases in size, the forest also around the outer green belt will also grow in size. Okay. Because they manage pests for that. There are no deer in there. There are no goats. There are no mm. pigs. They've all been taken out. Possums are controlled. So that forest is really starting to regrow. Some of it is still grass and, and uh, weeds, uh, but uh, in 100 years' time, it'll be forest because what we have is birds spreading the seed around, native birds spreading the seed around from Zelandia and other places Brilliant. and other reservoirs. Mm. So uh, that's uh, that's the big vision is not just Zelandia on its own, but the whole Wellington city area. And what you also get in people's backyards is people start planting native trees. Yeah, beautiful. And uh, they start protecting their own little sanctuaries, and uh, and that's happening to it to a reasonable degree. I mean, there's still a long way to go there. Uh, what we'd like people to do is to not let their cat roam around and kill birds. <laughs> yeah, that, that's hard. It's hard here as well. That's a difficult one, yeah. Well, are you involved in any projects outside of Zealandia right now? Uh, yeah, well, the, the big question now is can we supersize Zealandia? Mm. So Zealandia is quite small. And... Uh, what Zelandia has done is it's allowed us to take seven of those species which were only found in offshore islands before and put them onto the Zelandia uh, and put them onto the mainland. But they're small populations and they don't, uh, on their own, they won't, um, they won't uh, prevent extinction of those species. Uh, there are about another 29 sanctuaries which have been built around New Zealand. So Zelandia, uh, when, when set up, we had a lot of people coming from around New Zealand saying, oh, we want one of these in our backyard too. So they were set up all over the place around them. And they protect about 10,000 hectares of safe habitat. So it's a, quite a significant movement. It sounds uh, like it. Very big, yeah, very big. It's a, So Zelandia created a national movement. Uh, but most of those are isolated. Like uh, there is a very big one in uh, Ham near Hamilton in Cambridge, which is 3,000 hectares. And that's around a whole mountain. It's got a fence around a whole mountain. But the problem is it's isolated in farmland and uh, birds can't move out of it. Yeah. So what I want to do is supersize Zelandia and uh, uh, see if we can do this in a big forest area. Now, behind Wellington, we have a big Zelandia. <laughs> <laughs> we've, got, we've got the Wainuimata water collection area, which uh, was locked up in 1880 and never logged. Uh, and this is uh, a... Uh, 3,000, three and a half thousand hectare forest, which already has those big trees there. They're there. They never got taken out. Yeah. It was never burnt. And uh, they built a dam there in 1880. And uh, and so there's a huge forest here. And uh, that's big enough for us to hold genetically viable populations of every existing forest species, which is representative of the southern, southern North Island. 
Brilliant. And uh, so whereas we can have a population of uh, 200 little spotted Kiwi in Zalandia, at Wainuiamata, we could have 3,000. Wow. And that would double the existing population. And that would take it right away from the extinction doorstep. Uh, the Kākāpō uh, is our, our unique New Zealand night parrot. It's the biggest parrot in the world. Uh, it's about three kilograms in size. It can't fly. It's nocturnal. And it was uh, down to 50 birds. They were down to 50 birds in 1990. Uh, they've managed to gradually creep them up to 200. There's only 200 of them left. Now, the Kākāpō is only on two offshore islands in Stuart, the southern areas, Stuart Island, Fjordland. And nobody gets to see them. Nobody can see these things. Uh, you have to have a research permit to see these. Now, Kākāpō used to live in Wainuia Martin. So we have talked to the Kākāpō recovery group, and they're quite excited about Wainuia It's a... Uh, uh, Kākāpō require a special tree, rimu tree, which is one of those fruiting pines, uh, to trigger their breeding. And uh, Wainuiamata, Zalanta doesn't have any of those trees, uh, but Wainuiamata has 15,000 of them. So uh, Wainuiamata could hold another 200 uh, Kākāpō. And uh, so we've already done a plan and we've done a feasibility study to see if we could put a fence around the Wainuiamata catchment and the Wellington Regional Council are happy for us to do that. They have say, yes, this is a special forest. It needs to be uh, a special area. Uh, so we could put a 30 kilometre fence around uh, Wainuiamata, clear it all of pests. And uh, instead of having 400 of our saddlebacks there, we could have 4,000. Yeah. And uh, so instead of having uh, uh, 150 kar karka, we could have 2,000 karka. So you can see the scale of it. Yeah. And uh, the big thing about Wainuiamata, though, is it is right adjacent to Rimataka Forest Park, uh, which is a whole range, and it's 40,000 hectares of native forest, which has not been logged. Uh, now, it's a damaged forest. It's got a lot of pests in it. But if we set up... Uh, uh, Wainuiamata as catchment as the nursery, then we can have that halo effect which would go into the whole Rimataka range. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, if we managed all the pests in the Rimataka range, then we could we could have Zealandia multiplied by 15 times. So Big job, Jim. <laughs> That's a big and job. Of course, the next step from that is that Wainuiamata becomes a pilot for a whole network of these across the country. So we put one at Waipoa Forest in Northland, uh, which is a special cowrie forest, you know, that's uh, particularly in Northland. Then we put another big one in uh, Taupo and uh, uh, Forest. And we put another one in the Northwest Nelson, another one on the West Coast. So you have a network of these across the country. And what you do is you build up 20 to 30,000, add that to the community sanctuaries. You've got 30,000 hectares of ultra safe habitat spread across the country. And uh, if you put them into forests, then you have this halo effect across about half a million hectares. Yeah, so, amazing. So that's, uh, and we would, we, to do that, we would then have all of our uh, species which are currently stuck on offshore islands, they'd all come back into the mainland. So, so that's the big vision. That's the big vision. That's huge. Yeah. Jim, I'm yeah. conscious of time, but I want to make sure that our listeners might have an opportunity to support your work. Where should they go if they want to know more about these projects you're working on? 
Um, they can go to my website, jameslynch.org, and uh, they can contact me through that. And I'm very happy to. At the moment, uh, Wainui Amata is uh, going through. It's been we've done the feasibility study, and we're going through a funding phase. So uh, we need to get thirty million dollars for that one. That's a big one. And uh, uh, but uh, and I'm doing a TED talk on this next week as well. So uh, uh, I'm putting forward this idea. The idea for the TED talk is how can we end the prospect of extinction for our forest birds? And this is the way to do it: is to supersize Zealandia and uh, and uh, bring them all back onto the mainland. So that's the big idea. Gosh, Jim, I could tell in 500 years from now, there's a lot of people to think, but your vision is so big and so long that it, it is remarkable to see how much work you've put into this already as a volunteer and to see what you've already been able to achieve as the, the author of this plan. And I just want to thank you for your work and um, like just admire the long thinkings and the strategy and the, the fact you've been able to put a kind of commercial model behind Zealandia is such a, um, I, I guess, a sustainable model that other people should be looking at for their own work. And, you know, you're just such an inspiration. But thank you for your time today and thank you for sharing what you've done. It's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure Tammy, and uh, good luck for your, for your continued, uh, for your show. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Tammy again. When I'm not doing podcasts, I'm helping not-for-profits with IT decisions. The question for this week's IT and plain English came from a client. The question is, what is a shadow IT? Now, shadow IT is the term used to describe when business owners within the organization take ownership of vendor relationships and often system administration for IT solutions. This essentially creates a shadow IT department. This happens more and more today because it's so easy to buy cloud software for specific business needs, whether it's free or just a few hundred dollars a year using a corporate credit card. Now, some common examples I see all the time are for project management or social media management software. However, I've seen it on occasion used by a person or even an individual department for core functions like storing data in a free customer relationship management system when they actually already have an organizational CRM. The main problems with the shadow IT are that they increase data management and security risk. However, the more common problem I see, or at least hear about, is that IT departments are being asked to fix issues for software they know nothing about. Also, whenever I see a large shadow IT in an organization, I can guarantee you that data is probably all over the place and they are likely to be a lot of unnecessary manual processes being performed by the business. The only way to really fix this is to implement a strong IT governance structure that provides guidance for the enterprise architecture view and to guide future IT investment decisions. This is not a simple task, but a necessary one if you really want to keep control over your data and from a budget perspective, your IT investments too. So there you have it in plain English. If you have an IT question you want answered, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a message. I just want to answer your question on the show. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. To all of you executives with a cause, the world is definitely a better place because of you. Thank you for what you do and your teams do every day.